Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I live in Little Havana, as I've mentioned, which is a weird part of Miami because there isn't always a sharp line between like a business area and the residential areas. Many of the businesses have apartments in the second or third floor, or there's a duplex attached to the back of it. So like you'll see that 9th Street is residential, 8th Street is all businesses, 7th Street is both. It's a mixed place, it's, a, it's fun in some respects, it's not so fun in others, but there is a lot going on. In any little part of the street, if you if you just look at it for a little while, you'll end up see you'll end up noticing something that feels almost like a microcosm of Miami itself. I don't know, everything just ends up seeming profound. Or if you just kind of turn it off because it's so overwhelming, it starts everything just seems super mundane, which is also fine. The point of it is that there's always something to look at, and we're gonna end up talking about Goodwill, but be first, very quickly, I just wanna talk about like what feels like the most unexpected obsession that I had in the early weeks of quarantine, which was the obsession I cultivated with Andy Rooney. Andy Rooney was a TV personality. If the nothing comes to mind when you hear that name, you would almost certainly recognize his face and his voice. Imagine a short, stocky, white-haired Larry David. Sitting at a, a very professional dark wood desk, he's wearing a suit and a tie, and he is complaining, earnestly complaining, about how hard it is to open medicine bottles. And then imagine that this crotchety old man, for some reason, was allowed to complain about how hard it is to open medicine bottles for three and a half minutes at the end of 60 minutes. And by 60 minutes, I don't mean the end of a random performative hour. By the end of 60 minutes, I'm referring to the long-form primetime news program 60 Minutes on NBC. We know how to make money, but we don't know what to do once we get it. I have stock in two companies that I've never even heard of. I don't even know what they make. Probably all they make is money. This was Andy Rooney's job for 50 years, starting in the 1970s and ending when he turned 92, uh, I think in 2012. Andy Rooney had a segment at the end of each week's 60 Minutes where he just fucking complained about something. I'm always surprised how some months are spelled. August is easy, but February is strange. His career started out in traditional journalism. He was a reporter overseas during World War II, and then his gig at 60 Minutes, when it started off, yes, it was a televised gig, it was a performative gig, but he was always on camera beside his typewriter, and it wasn't just a prop. Right before quarantine began, I went to a library sale at uh, the Miami-Dade South Campus, and I bought a huge hardcover tome, and this book collected three Andy Rooney collections of those weekly curmudgeonly writings. There's probably three or four hundred essays in this thing, and at some point early on in quarantine, I read most of those essays. But despite having read easily probably some two or three hundred Andy Rooney essays, I can hardly remember what he said in any of them. These essays go 
in my eyes and then just like gravity bears down and they just fall directly out of my ass. And the, the analogy that came to mind was like candy. It's a very consistent and compressed and vivid and believable literary voice. You do feel as though you just spent five minutes in the company of an acquaintance. So it's a sweet experience like candy, but there's absolutely no nutritional quality. Incidentally, I heard the same thing once about corn. I don't know if that's entirely true, but that the reason why your corn is like undigested in your poop is because your body doesn't really take anything from it. And then I thought, okay, well maybe if it has that kind of that in common with candy, you could call it candy corn. And I do think it's fitting to say of an elderly curmudgeon that his writing is sort of the candy corn of literature, because especially with Andy Rooney, there's so much of it, and nobody seems to like it. Anyways, what I find so enchanting about the Andy Rooney thing is that he remained about as interesting as ever for the people who really liked his work, and he did all of that as a hermit, basically. Not like he would never go outside, but he was a curmudgeon, he was a writer, and so he, he didn't seem to go on adventures, he didn't seem to pursue great insights. What I think Andy Rooney's work exemplifies is that here was a dude who tasked himself, gave himself the assignment that every week he would need to be able to riff for two pages in a substantive and considered way about something. And yet, he wasn't putting himself in situations where those kinds of observations and those kinds of epiphanies would readily bubble up. He wasn't going into war zones or, or traveling the world or interviewing troublesome, problematic people. He just conditioned himself to look at the little things around him and to see them as metaphors for larger things. And he cracked the code in a sense. I think Andy Rooney realized that so long as he read the news and so long as he stayed aware of what was on the mind, of the average American and how they were feeling, he could then go into a hardware store or an ice cream shop or a dentist or a garage or a baseball park and he would find something there, this, you know, a small thing that echoed the larger sentiments of his broad American audience. Which brings us back by a commodious vicus of recirculation to Little Havana and to Goodwill specifically. The Goodwill on 8th Street in Little Havana is kind of a low-key gem in the area, allegedly. The idea that I've heard and not really seen verified, I don't think, is that this is the closest thrift store to Brickell Avenue, which is a really affluent area. Also, there's a ton of space inside, and also, most of that giant space is devoted to women's clothing. Thus, the idea is that rich people on Brickell Avenue they wear some designer clothing three or four times, and then they donate it to this particular Goodwill because it's closest. I'm not sure if that's true or just a myth, but there's always a, there's always a really long line at this Goodwill, and it tends to be women clutching huge armloads of clothes. This Goodwill is right near my laundromat, and so while I'm washing my clothes, I sometimes pop in to have a look at the bookshelves. And the bookshelves at Goodwill always seem a little bit depressing. Not because they're mostly empty, although they are. Not because they're in disrepair or the books are in bad shape, although they are. But because I get a sense that every book on every shelf was literally pulled from a dead person's collection. And I have two reasons for suspecting this. Here is reason number one. Now this might be a more common practice than I realize, but I've been going to a lot of Goodwills around Miami for a long time, and I've never seen it happen so consistently as I see it happen at this one. Because whenever I hang out at the at the bookshelves for a while, like if I've picked something up and I'm 
reading the first few pages, someone comes up or there was someone already there doing this. They take down every hardcover book from every single shelf. They check the front flap and the back flap searching for cash. So apparently this is like an age old thing that people hide cash in their books. And I'm thinking, this is just conjecture, I'm thinking more specifically, this is something that a previous generation would do, but for there's something about it that seems sinister. Like the reason a person is putting a the money in a book is because they don't have a more secure space, which maybe they just don't trust their bank, but it also suggests that they can't like get a safe or they don't feel they can safely put it in a drawer, something like, something like that. Whatever the case, I see this happening so often and by such an array of people, that I'm guessing it works. I'm guessing people find luck when they do this. It must happen now and then that someone opens a book or maybe two or three books, they check a flap and out comes someone's hidden cash. But if someone is hiding cash in a book, they probably know which of the books on their shelves has the hidden cash in it. And they aren't likely to donate that book to Goodwill unless they're dead and someone came into their house and just threw all the books in a box. So yes, it does seem like, oh, this happens so often, people must have a lot of good luck with it. But then that reminds me of another thing and this will be a quick digression just to make the point. Okay, at one point in my junior year or maybe it was my senior year at FIU when I was living in a dorm on the 8th Street campus, the Florida Lottery jackpot, the, I don't know if it's the mega jackpot or something, it went up to like, 700 million dollars, something insane, something it had, like a new height it had never before achieved. It was some cosmic number whose ownership I don't think anyone can really comprehend. One time a while ago, I, like, it's some, I, I got an inheritance. It, it was a four-figure inheritance. It wasn't a huge thing, but it was more money than I had ever had in my life. And suddenly, with this all this money in my pocket, I was like, do, what, do people have to call me sir now? It just seemed like because so much of my life was devoted to the acquisition of money, or maybe it just felt that way because I hated my job, but because so much of my life was devoted to the pursuit of a very modest bi-weekly amount of money, the fact that I suddenly had a huge amount of money, an unprecedentedly huge amount of money in my lap made me think like that some fundamental part of my being had changed, that I was in a different life now. And if I felt that way at the fucking getting like six grand, like I, can't, I honestly can't imagine what $700 million would do to my identity. I think there would, there would definitely be some sort of tectonic shift, a brief window of identity crisis if I had that much money. And it would be an identity crisis, not because something about having so much money would estrange me from my principles and turn me into some sort of monstrous, Wonka-like eccentric who needs new things. I think the identity crisis I would have if I suddenly had $700 million would be like, okay, I now have more money than I could spend in 70 lifetimes, so what am I supposed to do with that? What are the parameters of my ethical responsibilities with this money? How should I divvy it up amongst causes? Is it suddenly the case, now that you have $700 million, that any time someone who, real, who was really a friend with you when you were broke, now suddenly if they fall onto hard financial times, are you, is, it, is it basically incumbent on you to just bail them out of it? Yeah, the point is, there's a lot of shit that would change about your life if you suddenly had 700, as Biggie would say. Anyway, the year is 2012. 
and the Florida Lotto is in the mid or high mid nine figures. And at one point I, I walked across the street from campus. I was going to Publix to get some beer or something and I'm not exaggerating. There were maybe 200 people in line to buy lottery tickets. The line went all the way across the front of Publix where they sell lottery tickets. It went out the door and to the back of the parking lot. And as I was walking across this line just to get in there and actually buy something, I noticed that everyone in line was excited. Everyone was tittering. Everyone was speculating openly about what they would do with so many hundreds of millions of dollars. I, and I don't even know if it, there's any point in breaking this down, but like, you don't actually get that much money. I think it's that you either take half up front or you take the whole sum spaced over the course of like 25 years and whichever of those two options you choose, the money they give you is before taxes. What seems so weird, I guess, is that not only did everyone in this line seem to genuinely think that they had a substantive chance of winning the lottery, it was that they had been lured out to Publix to stand in this long, long line by a $700 million jackpot in a way that they were not lured out to Publix when the jackpot was $70 million or $200 million. Which begs the question, like, what, what are you gonna do with $700 million that you wouldn't be able to do with $11 million or $9 million? With $11 million, you would never have to work another day in your life, but presumably that's not good enough incentive to miss modern family, whereas with $700 million, you would be able to buy, purchase an island. And in that case, all right, well, I'll, I'll go fucking waste my evening in line. It's as though the prospect of never having to work again and being able to drive a nice car and have a nice home and eat at restaurants as often as you like and, and live in Coral Gables, whatever, it is as though that portrait of sort of stability is a little bit too vanilla for the average person. It's not enough to really galvanize them into action. But anyways, that... In bro broadly speaking, that's part of my point. If people will go out and stand in line for several hours to get a lottery ticket, and maybe they always get lottery tickets, maybe they never get lottery tickets, but they have this North Star in their mind of a $700 million jackpot, and they're not gonna miss that fucking opportunity. Well, by that extension, Maybe it's the case that they search every book on every shelf of every goodwill, not because they've ever found cash in a book or they know anyone who's ever found cash, but because there's always the chance that they might. Anyways, here's the second reason why I'm convinced that every book at Goodwill comes from a dead person. There's always a bunch of post-administration memoirs from people in the George W. Bush administration. Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney. Such books that people dash off for a few million dollars once they're out of the White House, they tend to be completely unreliable as historical documents. It's people basically trying to whitewash whatever they fucked up. And I don't think many people read these books, except maybe people who are newly retired, because now they've got time on their hands, and they experience some kind of kinship with like, oh, look, here's a memoir from someone else who's recently out of work. And this is just a guess, but I think it's probably true. So let's say these books from the Bush administration, they came out in roughly 2009 to 2011. And let's say that this hypothetical memoir buyer that I'm talking about was 68 or 67 when they bought it, well, 13 years later, they're in their early 80s, and they might have just died. Whereupon their 
partially red, mint-conditioned hardback of Known and Unknown by Donald Rumsfeld is heaped into a box with their inexplicably robust supply of Miami sweaters and white tube socks and then just hauled away to Goodwill. Incidentally, speaking of tube socks, a friend of mine called a bunch of homeless shelters in Miami and asked what is the most useful thing to donate. And what he consistently found is they were like, you know, toiletries, obviously, you know, tampons, deodorant, body wash, shampoo. But the surprising thing that came up again and again was undergarments, both underwear and socks. Nobody donates those two things. Obviously, they don't want used versions of tube socks and boxer briefs or panties, and what they, the donations they tend to get, of course, are used clothing. But I only mention it here at the end because it's one of those details that, like, you, in life, you just never stop to consider it. Not because you're insensitive with your donations, it, it just doesn't occur to you. Most of us, we've got a bunch of shit going on in our lives and we're trying to accomplish things, and not many of us have a life like Andy Rooney, for instance, where our job is to just to keep an eye out for the little things, to be able to look at random little things in our daily life and to see the quirks of, like in the lottery, the quirks of human hope and human delusion and human frailty. Those, those little details are everywhere. Those sort of secret, dusty, treasured insights, once you know how to look for them, they just drop into your lap like a snowflake from the sky or a dead man's money from a book's front fold. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more of it, you can help the show along by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash thousand movie project where you will get bonus episodes that are Patreon exclusive and where for the month of March, at least, I am sending out chapters of uh, the book that I just finished writing. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.